Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. So today we are talking about something that comes up a lot in your work, Cheryl. I think it often springs out naturally from conversations about relationship anxiety and attraction and falling in love and what does it mean to be in love and to seek out certain feelings from a partner. And this feeling in particular that we're talking about is a feeling of aliveness. And you talk a lot about how we often seek for, you know, a partner and other things too in life, but maybe a partner to make us feel alive. And you are often inviting us to find ways to tend to our own aliveness. Mm. And we had a, a message from someone who listens to the podcast, and she asked us about this topic. She wrote in and she said, Hello, Cheryl. I have been following you for three, three to four years now and have gained so much wisdom from your writing and podcasts. Thank you for all the content you create. It really is bomb for the HSP souls out here. I just listened to your latest podcast episode and started thinking more about the idea of aliveness. I see you have written about this in some of your blog posts and was wondering if you and Victoria would be interested in talking about this on your podcast. I'd love to hear what both of you think about this concept and the specific ways and activities you incorporate into your life to cultivate aliveness. Mm. Yes, and we both felt a very strong yes to this topic. So Mm -hmm. thank you to our listener for suggesting it. It is certainly something that comes up all the time in my work. So you sent me a piece by Richard Rohr and I read it very early morning. Maybe it wasn't even light out. Mm -hmm. And there was something about it that inspired me to write back and Mm. write on the prompt of aliveness. And so I sent you a text and said, how about we both write about it? And this is what I wrote. And I called it Ode to Aliveness. For me, to be fully alive is to embrace the fullness of this life which means the beauty and hope and joy and goodness, yes, but also the grief and heartbreak and disappointment and struggle. This life is all things, so to be fully in this life means to seek to embrace all things, including and especially the harder parts of life and of myself. To be fully alive is to embrace a path of growth, for all things are growing in some way, and this means finding the courage to see my failings. I might resist these failings in a moment, defend against them, but eventually the defenses soften and I see the hurt place that birthed the imperfect place in me, and something in me rises up to hold the imperfection. These are not easy moments, 
but they're holy moments because they move me toward wholeness. To live my aliveness is to be open to the creative energy that flows through all of us. It's taking the time to notice something in my inner or outer world that wants to be noticed and transposing it into poetry or art or dance. Many of these expressions remain private, but some want to be shared. And to be fully alive is to find the courage to share my soul, to make the invisible visible, and offer pieces of me to someone outside of me. To be fully alive is to take risks, to step outside my comfort zone again and again and again. This might look like facing my fear of small spaces so that I can travel and see new places. It might look like sharing a blog post or being a guest on a podcast. It might look like reaching for my husband in a moment when fear wants me to turn away. It might look like stopping to say hello to someone on a hike who looks familiar, even if they don't remember me. Connection is also a bridge to aliveness, but it often requires courage to make a connection that is outside our comfort zone. So there is some relationship here between aliveness, fear, courage, and connection. For me, to be fully alive is to embrace the dark, to befriend the dark, which means befriending fear and terror and grief, to learn how to hold hands with the terror that rises in the night, old terror that is not mine and did not start with me, to bring fear into the great cauldron of night's brew and stir it in as an essential ingredient, not something to bypass or get over, but one of our most potent pathways to aliveness. Grief, too. To wail and keen alone and in front of another. To allow the ancient song of grief that is not pretty to rattle through my body, coursing pathways of melody through my veins and connecting me to every woman who has wailed and wept and walked this path before me. Sleep is aliveness. There are few things that make me feel more alive than getting a full night's sleep. But wakefulness at the witching hour between two and four can also be aliveness. Paradox is aliveness. So to say that sleep is aliveness and wakefulness is aliveness sounds like a contradiction, but is in fact a paradox. And it's through paradox that we enter into the mysterious realm that makes us feel alive. Naps are also glorious. The symphony of spring is alive, yes, and so is silence after snowfall. And the glitter of sunlight on blankets of snow may very well be angels. Fully inhabiting my body is aliveness. Dancing, music, cats, turning my face to the sun, moonlight, conversations with the moon, tree mothers, Creek spirit, poetry, a bright smile with a stranger on a morning hike, the sound of my footsteps crunching on pebbly trails, the first bite of ice cream, cold water on a hot day. Thank you. Mm. So juicy and poetic as always. Mm. And I'm struck by how you open with this idea that aliveness is about embracing the totality of life. Mm. Because I think so often we hear aliveness and wanting to feel alive and we think of peak experiences and very overtly positive experiences. And that's part of it. But that's not all of it. And I... I think about a time in my life when I was just a couple of years ago, get, getting into the, the second half of my 20s, like say I, I was probably around 27 mm. and kind of more, more fully entrenched in adulthood and responsibilities. And, you know, I'd been with my partner for, I guess, four or five years and Many friends had moved away at that point, and there's much more of just this sense of like adulthood and commuting and just these things that are not exactly like 
ah, I feel so alive when I'm driving to the same job I've been doing for the past several years and I'm paying my bills and, you know, my partner and I are starting to really see each other's wounds and flaws. And and I remember just thinking to myself, like, does the magic just go away in life? Mm. (laughs) Like there's this really painful time where I was like, do you just get older and like the magic is just gone? Mm. Like the mm. newness and the possibility and and it's a painful place to be in when you feel like yes. that juice being sucked out, that color being drained out. Yes. So I'm just really curious when you hear – when people come to you and they're struggling in some way with tapping into their aliveness. Mm. Are there common themes that you hear coming from them about Mm. what they're struggling with, where the stumbling blocks are? I think you're bringing such an important point in around adulthood and kind of the rude awakening that we all know is coming. So it's not such a rude awakening, but the reality of the day-to-day of what it is to be an adult without that next thing, without I'm going to graduate from high school and then maybe I'm going to graduate from college or I'm going to get my first apartment or my first job and everything's first. And and there's definitely an aliveness about in novelty. Yeah. And so how do we both – both and create new experiences for ourselves while also cultivating a way of being with the everyday, the goodness of ordinary life, we might say, that connects us to aliveness because it can't all be about the next new shiny glittery thing. That's a huge trap people can certainly fall into, especially in relationships when it gets to be hard and real and, oh, wouldn't it be so easy, so much easier to jump ship and start over with that nice new glittery person over there? But I think part of adulthood is recognizing that the newness, the innocence, the novelty of childhood ends in a certain way and that there is There can be hard times and hard years even of grappling with the everyday, the mundane. But when we stay with it, we come to such a deeper, richer sense of aliveness that's not based on novelty anymore. It's actually rooted in the everyday, going through life every day. At the same time, let's say we're at a job that really does suck the soul out of us. Right. And it's there's a there's a there's a mundanity, there's there's something mundane truly that is not soul nourishing in that experience, then that might be something that if possible, we take a look at and see if it's possible to shift that in some way. So I think something that comes up a lot on the podcast, it's come up several times, is that balance between the external and the internal, right? We don't want to say aliveness is only an internal job and to exclude circumstances that can certainly tamp down on aliveness. But when it comes to something like a long-term healthy relationship, then we want to take a look at what's happening inside of me. How am I responsible for my own aliveness without making it my partner's job to make me feel alive, to make me feel in love? So are there certain themes? I think one of the most common themes is that when we shut down our channels to emotion, to grief, to hard feelings, we are shutting, we are making a very narrow pathway for aliveness because we're also shutting down the joy and the exuberance and the excitement, right? We we can't have one without the other. And so that's a common theme that shows up because we're not raised in a you know, 
grief intelligent culture. And so those pathways get shut down really very early. And the path the, the pathways to the body, the pathways to the heart. So that's I think one of our fastest ways back to alive of live aliveness, but it's not necessarily fast, but it's a direct pathway to aliveness. So I think that's one area. I think also this is a theme that shows up for sure in the people who find their way to me. I don't think one of the things I think we want to touch on is that one person's pathway to aliveness is not necessarily another person's. So I was sharing the example in some of the writing I sent to you that lo and behold, both of my boys come alive in urban settings, right? Despite my best efforts to raise them in this <laughs> land with the creek and the trees and let's talk to the trees. And they're like, yeah, that's nice for you, mom. <laughs> We're going to New York. So they, I see them come alive in the city and I see them not feeling so alive where we live here. And for me, it's exactly the opposite. It's not that I didn't feel alive last time we went to New York City. I did. But at, for a short burst, right? For a visit, it was really fun. But for more along like the lines of the novelty, like, ooh, we get to kind of pretend that we're living on the Upper West Side, a block from Central Park. And, you know, that would never be our actual life unless we wanted to live in a shoebox, which we don't. So, <laughs> but the people who find their way to me, one of the other common themes is along the the spiritual continuum conversation and what happens when that gets shut down because when i talk about and and by spiritual i mean many different things i mean it can mean a connection to nature which that's what it means for many people who find their way to me especially when they've suffered religious trauma or abuse that there's there's a longing to come fully alive in that kind of non-human relationship. And I think that gets projected so much onto a human relationship mm. when that deep sense of in-loveness, we are all capable of feeling, you know, on a hike or in the middle of the night with the moon. So that shows up. So it's both in this in the emotional somatic realm and in the spiritual realm where there's been a shutting down and and a deep longing to find pathways, everyone's own pathways for opening those places back up. That's really helpful. I think that one of the blocks for me also is being overly protective of myself and something that you and I both, because I, I wrote like three single spaced pages that I sent to you that I'm not reading <laughs> here because it was much less elegant than what you wrote. But something that came up in what I wrote and what you wrote was around taking risks, like healthy yes. risks. And for me, being incredibly risk averse, I can kind of slowly start, it happens slowly and subtly, but steadily taking less and less of those healthy risks and staying a lot more in a certain comfort zone in different ways. Mm. And so for me, like aliveness comes with as you named fear and just discomfort, mm -hmm. honestly, like being mm -hmm. alive is like uncomfortable <laughs> sometimes, you know, and often it's mostly more so discomfort than anything else with these. They're not even these huge risks. They're just, you know, like you said, saying hi to your neighbor that you think might not remember you is mm -hmm. uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's something that Pema Chodron talks about a lot is like, okay, this is uncomfortable, but it's just uncomfortable. It's mm. not, it's not really anything more than that. It, what's yeah. that? It's not going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But when you're so afraid, at, like we've named before, you're so afraid of death, you know, to the point where you're like, I'm not getting on a plane. I'm not, you know, going for a swim. I'm not like whatever. And you're you're so afraid of any, like any rejection or any judgment or any criticism. It's like it can just get smaller and smaller. So... I've had to really find voices that I can bring into my own head <laughs> that gently and kindly encourage me to take risks. Mm. Yes. And I've watched you do that, and it's been so inspiring <laughs> to see you take risk after risk after risk over the years and do things that wasn't in your template necessarily Mm -hmm. that really had to push you outside of what you had seen. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting where that comes from, the the willingness to push ourselves, the willingness to say, I'm going to do something that I wasn't raised thinking I should do or would want to do. I think some of that is just the mysterious element of being human of why why some people have that in them that that willingness to like why would we want to face our fears well the reason is exactly what we're saying it's it's because it leads to growth and expansion and truly a sense of aliveness I can say that the times I have felt most alive some of the times I have felt most alive even exhilarated, right? Which I think is like aliveness is a continuum, right? But to feel ecstatic, to feel exhilarated are when the times that I have proactively with tools, not white knuckling, but with tools faced my panic. Mm -hmm. And that on the other side of panic, which is, I think, the most extreme terror you can feel without actually being in danger, Mm. but having a panic attack is truly terrifying, that when we face it, again, with our supports and with the things that we've learned for working with panic would be a good episode sometime, panic attacks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot of experience. (laughs) Yes, so do I. (laughs) But for me, on the other side is exhilaration. And it's a a specific, it's unique to – there's a correlation. It's connected to the panic and walking through that – those doorways – And there was a time when I was facing it a lot and I had this feeling of bring it on. Like, where's the next challenge? Where's the next fear? What else can I do? Because the other side was so exhilarating and expansive that I understood people who take huge physical risks like rock climbing without ropes or something, you know. That there must that there's something that they're getting. There's some high, right? And so if we're looking for that high, which we only associate with being in love in our culture, that's the only time we really talk about it. And yeah. our language, there's such a paucity in language, there's such a scarcity of language that even our language, that to say to be in love only refers to romantic love. And when we say it, about anything else, there's always a part of the brain that's like, do you mean romantic love? Mm. Right? That's why I love the part of what you shared, and maybe you can share some of it about friend love. Yeah. And falling into friend love. Yeah. Yeah. I I wrote about how when I was 22, I met my friend Melissa at work. We were both working at a writing center at a community college. And it was the first time I really made a friend outside of school because now I was 22. I had just graduated from school and she was a couple years older than me. 
And we both acknowledged that it felt like dating and falling in love in a way. But we were it was platonic. We were just yes. friends. But like the first time one of us asked the other to hang out and you know, it was like we just we called it a date. Like we talked about it being like a date and we decided to go to this somewhat romantic sushi restaurant. <laughs> and we it. both brought we we both loved the show Gilmore Girls, and there's this episode where one of the characters was so nervous about going on her first date that she had index cards with conversation topics that she was going to bring. And her friend was like, oh my gosh, do not do that. But so we did that. We brought index cards with conversation topics to this sushi restaurant. And I remember like running into a friend of hers somewhere, and he was like, oh yeah, like Melissa, just like... She can't stop talking about you. Like, you know, we were just like totally in like meeting a new friend. Yes. Like that high, that like in yes. love. Like, oh my gosh, we click. Like we have chem- we have that chemistry. Yes. And over time, like it has totally evolved into a totally different thing. You know, like just on Friday, I went and babysat her seven-month-old baby. You know, since we met, she's gotten married. She's had a baby. We've gone through so many different phases. But yeah, we totally had. So like you can you can fall in love with other people, I think, all the time. Mm. And it doesn't – in a different way. And it yes. doesn't have to scare you. Like to be like, oh, wow, I really like this person or, oh, this is such a cool person or we really click. Like, I understand how that can get for people who have like fear of like, oh my gosh, what if I cheat? What if I fall in love with someone else? But I don't know. I think like you're saying, there's there's such a continuum, a spectrum Mm. with so many things. And if we're so afraid of that, that we like close off our hearts, Mm -hmm. then we're like, missing out on these other kinds of connections we can have. Yes. How would you describe the aliveness in your friendship with Melissa now, almost mm. 10 years in, versus that new, exciting, fluttery novel? It's actually, like you said, kind of that everydayness. Like I, I tear up sometimes when I just think about like she's so thoughtful about checking in with me and asking, following up on, oh, I know you, you know, how's your grandmother doing? I heard she was Mm. in the hospital. How is, Mm. how did your presentation go at school? Mm. When I'm feeling down on myself, she is so good at, at just saying, giving me another story. Like she's the friend I was thinking of when I was in our last episode about the stories we tell ourselves yes. about, you know, having one story about myself. And she's always telling me another story, but very compassionately. Like she understands why I feel the way I do. And mm. she says, okay, and I see you this way. And now, like I said, like I'm babysitting her baby and I am trying to give to her that same attention of, mm. I think I mentioned this in another episode, but there's that line from the film Lady Bird where they say, the character says, I'm paraphrasing, that love and paying attention are the same thing. Mm, yes. And and that's kind of what I feel now. So, you know, in the times since, there have been times we haven't, we've disagreed. There have been times I felt disconnected from her, totally. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been times that we've seen our differences. Um, But now it's just that deep care and attention that we continue to give to it because we know that that's what real friendship and love takes is that effort and attention, you know? Yes. It's not a high, (laughs) it's a choice. Mm -mm. I'm thinking about my friendships that I've had for decades and decades and same kind of thing the newness. I mean, one of my best friends I met when we were 11, but still such a glorious kinship soul finding to to meet each to find each other. And 
that deep longing of a best friend Mm -hmm. being fulfilled. And then now, 40 years later, speaking to the feeling of aliveness, I think is, again, like I wrote about, a life fully lived. And so a relationship fully lived is going to include, yes, times of struggle, times of disconnect. We've had times of no contact, Mm -hmm. which were excruciatingly painful. Mm -hmm. Times when it seemed like I don't know if this friendship is going to survive. We seem like we're going in such different directions, but the coming back together and the the richness of that and the depth of that, the depth of our capacity as humans to endure really hard things in relationships and within our own selves. And then the payoff right it's like it's it's holding that tension of opposites that you don't get to be fully alive fully alive yes there's the initial you know shiny fluttery novelty stage but but the depth of aliveness without going through hard things like i'm thinking about childbirth which possibly nothing physically harder I mean, I can't speak to everything, but certainly nothing physically harder than I've ever done. Like that is without a doubt the hardest, most painful, most excruciating experience of my life. And then I did it again. Why? Because (laughs) what's on the other side Mm -hmm. is the most alive experience, the definition of life. And it's facing death, it's facing fear, it's facing pain that brings you to life, life, right? Alive, like aliveness is to be alive, is to be, is to be in this life. You know, we were just learning about existential philosophy in my counseling theories class, and Mm. it's so my jam. It's like everything that has – it's just everything that's fascinated me for the longest time, but definitely since about the age of like 20 or so, which is, you know, the the existential philosophers believed that there are these four givens in life, and those givens are death – isolation, Mm. meaninglessness, Mm. and freedom. Mm. And that what causes anxiety is when we're not meeting those givens, when we're Mm. either overcompensating or trying to avoid the fact that death exists, the Mm. fact that in some ways we are alone fundamentally, (laughs) the fact that we have to create meaning in our life. If we don't Mm -hmm. have a belief that there is inherent meaning, that we have to create it. And the fact that we have choice. Yes. These things are terrifying. Yes. But the invitation and what's actually, you know, someone in my class was like, this is depressing. And I would have thought that in the past too, but I have a different, I have an appreciation now for, for the invitation of the existentialist to say, by accepting death, you can live more fully into appreciation Mm -hmm. for life and being here. By accepting your aloneness, you can seek out connection. By accepting, you know, the fact that you have to create meaning, you you can answer that call. And by accepting that you have choices, you can take responsibility for them. Mm. And that's what it means to be alive, you know, mm. in their view. And those four givens can be totally terrifying, but also can invite us into deeper living when we look at mm. them mm. and grapple with them. 
Would you say that to be a lot, to be fully alive, to experience aliveness is a feeling? Mm. That's such a good question. I'm not sure because for me, I don't often have the feelings that I want to have in the moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I put so much pressure on myself to have that certain feeling. Yes. And I experience so much fear and so much judgment and so much expectation and so much like, oh, it was supposed to be this way and it wasn't quite this way that I have to just like do the things. And then if the gift of awe or the gift of gratitude or the gift of joy comes, Mm. Mm. like that's amazing. But maybe also for me, it's like flow. If I can get into flow, Mm. like with poetry or music or Mm. connection with another person. Mm -hmm. That feels like aliveness too, just a certain focused, connected feeling. What do you think? Yes. (laughs) I am fascinated by my own question because (laughs) (laughs) I almost wish we would have spent more time defining like what do we mean by aliveness Mm -hmm. what does that mean i think we just assume that we're all talking about the same thing Mm. to me aliveness is a feeling of being awake and here Mm. and present for what life is presenting Mm-hmm. And what my psyche is presenting, that it's meeting what shows up as best I can, right? To recognize that it's like what you're saying about the existentialist. And I think that's where the question came from inside of me is they're talking about what it is to be human, that those are the four inescapable experiences of being human. And it reminds me of the Buddhist philosophy that life Mm -hmm. is suffering. Mm -hmm. And and that used to seem so depressing to me also. Like, come on. (laughs) Life is suffering. But then it's – and really what they mean is it's when you fight that and resist it that the true suffering, that the enlightenment, whatever that means – happens when we accept the hard parts, accept that there's going to be disappointment and frustration and isolation and death and fear, and that there is an awakeness and a feeling of aliveness. What What is that? It's It's like being, yeah, being in the flow, being in the stream, being in the river, being here for what life is presenting, even when it's not what we thought it was supposed to be, but it's here it is. This time that I've alluded to this past winter, that was quite a descent and initiation for me with the darkness was so terrifying and so alive, Mm. so alive. And it was like all of the inconsequential, all of the ways of spending time that don't lead to aliveness, which I think might be worth giving some attention to a little bit about Mm. what we do that shuts down a life. What is the Mm. opposite? Like scrolling, like, you know, I know there's a place for that, but just the the mind of it getting stuck there, it was cast away. There was not even a temptation. I couldn't. I physically couldn't Mm. because my soul was needing to cleave to my understanding of God, my ways to God. Mm. Because what was being called was so big and so vast that 
I, I had to meet it and I had to not fall into those patterns. Right. I mean, it really wasn't even an option for me. Yeah. I suppose there was some choice some somewhere along the way to do something different to, I don't know, you know, numb out in some way. Yeah. So I think that's part of it is like, what are the ways that we numb? And I think when people talk about not feeling alive, what they're talking about is feeling flat or blank or numb or disconnected, mm-hmm. right? It's when we're mm-hmm. disconnected. And so I the, the metaphor that I often think of and use is the metaphor of the tree, that we are a tree. Trees are alive and we have these channels inside of us for connection. And there's this central call, this connection to self, which is like our trunk. And there's connection to others and community and friendship and purpose and work, animals, and on the, on the right branches and then on the left branches. And I've shared this image in my blog. And then in the left branches is our connection to Invisible realm, rituals, creativity, ancestors, nature. And I think when any of those get shut down, right, when we contract, like contraction is not aliveness. Mm -hmm. Disconnection is not aliveness. When we contract and disconnect and numb, we, we go flat and we lose our source, right? Connection to self, others, and invisible. So I think there are things that we do on a daily basis that so easily lead to numbness and flatness, right? We make that choice. That's the, we have freedom. And I think it's in some ways incredibly difficult, more and more difficult these days because the ways of numbing are so easily accessible. Yeah. That to make the choice not to do that is Herculean. It's like mm. resting yourself away from this pull toward our screens that in moderation are fine, but in overdoses lead to very much lack of aliveness. Like for me, and you know, I can be on the perfectionist spectrum here. So take it with a grain of salt. But for me, too much time on screens is deadness, right? That is just dead zone. I can feel my soul going to sleep. Yeah. Oh, I have to fight the impulse to just sit on the couch with the shades down, with my laptop and my cell phone. And my TV, sometimes all three going at the same time. And I can peer out the gap between the window shade and the window sill. And I go, oh, looks like it's a nice day out there. Well, Mm. wish wish I could get the energy to go out and be part of it. But here I am. And, you know, it's when I think about those moments of exhilaration and aliveness, which I do, I think for me, it's kind of like that anticipatory anxiety episode. Like there's Mm. the anticipatory anxiety and then the depth of relief, like the high that we get from from meeting fear or like the, it's almost like a high relief. (laughs) But when I do, you know, like I shared in the self-care episode, going on these really, these vigorous, rigorous hikes Mm. with Martin every weekend for a few weeks there. And I got back into the rock climbing gym recently. And like, I'm so scared. I'm so scared <laughs> to to fall, to get up high, to use the auto belay. Mm. But then I just like feel so alive, you know, Yes. When I get into my body, when I meet that fear and challenge and like when I start to feel myself improving a bit and getting stronger and I'm like, holy moly, did I just mm-hmm. – like a few years ago when I was going to the rock climbing gym a lot and I started to get to do like harder stuff and cool – and like it was exhilarating. 
you know? And I think the pandemic has been really hard for all of that. Mm, Yes. We act like it's totally over and fine. Like I, for one, have struggled a lot to get back Mm. into normal life. Yes. Normal, quote unquote, whatever. There are a lot of people who are still struggling. And I think we can't take that for granted that we went, we've gone through this time of being, we were literally locked up for a time and we, there's been so much stress and a lot of illness and death for a lot of people and, um, afraid to live. Yeah. Afraid to touch. Afraid to see people. Afraid to breathe air that other people have breathed. Afraid to go to the grocery store. And go into the world. It makes me think of this quote that I shared with you from the play A Streetcar Named Desire. You know Mm. I always have to bring in a text. I love it. (laughs) Um, I read it in college at a time when I was about to face a big transition of graduating and a lot of grief around that. Mm. Mm. And I read this play in one of my classes and there's a character named Blanche who – has been around a lot of sickness and death. Mm. And at one point in the play, she says the opposite of death is desire. And I find just desire, the whole topic of desire, completely fascinating. Mm. (laughs) And I think it's related to the realms of like the erotic, you know, Mm -hmm. which – Sexuality is part of it, but I think, again, there's a paucity, like you said, in Mm, our understanding of these things. To me, the erotic and and desire are so much more than just sex. Mm -hmm. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about what we're saying about breathing the air that other people breathe, about touch, about Mm. connection with people, and about the freedom to just to want things and then to go after what you desire. Mm. You know, there's a long time with COVID where we like couldn't do a lot of things that we desired to do. Yes. I'm just curious, Cheryl, when I say the opposite is desire or when I talk about desire, does anything in that click for you? Does that land anywhere for you? Or are you like, yeah, that's not really it for me? A hundred percent. It's such a brilliant statement. The opposite of death is desire. And it's exactly what we're talking about. Because desire is, I mean, on the sexual level, what births new life through the sexual act. Yeah. And then, but again, taking it out of that narrow realm of eros, that eros, and it's not just erotic, eros is the life stream, the pulse of life that informs our entire existence on this planet Mm. is eros, is being, that's why to me being in reciprocal relationship with the natural world is eros. It's, it's, so it's, I don't know that I would call it desire, but it's on that continuum. There's a, there's a longing. It's like when I walk out our back door into the yard to cross it, to come to this studio every single time. And it doesn't matter if it's, I mean, spring is so obviously around about aliveness, but it happens in winter. It happens in autumn. It happens in summer. I feel this infusion. Like I am being surrounded by life, like the grass and the, trees, even if the grass is not alive, it's winter, but the, or the snow in the sky and the, the beings mm. that it's, it's just like this mm. of alive. It is so alive and it's coming to meet me and I'm coming to meet it. So I think again, thinking of it in its opposite, I love that image that you painted of being in your apartment with all kinds of screens and devices, <laughs> all of them. Just give me all of them, all my devices at once. 
And it's a beautiful day and you can see out the slats like, oh, that looks nice out there. <laughs> There's life happening. Yeah. There is aliveness. All I have to do is find that something in me to get on my shoes and cross this, what feels like an impossible threshold. Yeah. Between the comfort of stagnancy and screens and the world. Yeah. Which is just right out there, right? Just step onto the sidewalk and there's there's the world and you'll see a car and a human. And <laughs> so, you know, we do make choices that lead to aliveness or lead to numbness, deadness. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's easy to make those choices, especially if it wasn't modeled for you. Very difficult, like the self-care episode, right? I don't mean to say just be al- make the choice to be alive. It's yeah, super so easy. just do it. Just do it, peeps. No, it's not like that. (laughs) But I think it is valuable to, you know, and maybe we can wind down here just as an exercise, as an invitation to write down what makes you feel alive without too much pressure or agenda And write down what makes you not feel alive, what shuts you down, what closes you off. You know, when I was talking about the tree, the tree of life, what areas on that tree are you aware are in disconnect, are in shutdown? Mm. And it's not to be perfectionistic. It's to just be curious, Mm. to really be curious about what opens me, what shuts me down. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Victoria. And I want to say that doing this podcast with you is one of the most alive experiences of my life. Me too. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good thing we weren't in school together. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been so fun, though. It would have been so fun, though, giggling uncontrollably in the back of the class or in the front. Oh, yeah, we were both sitting. (laughs) 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 Only sat in the back when they put me back there to be a good influence on the kids in the back. Right. Mm -hmm. Strategically positioning you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Okay. Okay.